Hello! Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, so we are still looking at the the selected letters of HP Lovecraft, Volume Three. Um, so if you're following along with this series, you can. Um, we're just going to pick up where we left off using the same format. Uh, if you're just joining us, you might want to go back and listen to some of my earlier episodes about his letters. But um, the themes here should should stand on their own, I think. Um, as always, I'll be looking at 20 letters, uh, which will cover the period of from July to September of 1931. Um, so... A couple things going on in this set of letters is he begins his correspondence with J. Vernon Shea, who is a, a, like a younger weird fiction writer. So, so it's one of like the later correspondents that Lovecraft got involved with. And he seems to do a lot here of encouraging his, his career. And they talk about August Derleth quite a bit, um, the state of weird, weird tales and things like that. Um, we got... Uh, not as I think is this the first time is the first time we have no letters to James Fernand Morton in the selected letters, but um, other people we've looked at I think see uh, August Derleth, Robert E. Howard, Maurice Moe, Elizabeth Tolbridge, uh, Wilfred uh, Blanche Tallman, who you know a couple of these people he worked on with revisions. Well, these Tallman he did. Uh, we got uh, one letter to Clark Ashton Smith. So um, thematically, uh, there's a couple of, of rather important article uh, letters here uh, dealing with religion, especially to Maurice Moe. This is kind of, a, I think, a follow-up from, um, no, that was a letter to Long that we looked at last time, a really long letter where he looked at uh, Catholicism. He, he talks about some of these issues to Maurice Moe this time around, um, some stuff about racial memory uh, in a letter to Robert Howard. So I think we got some good stuff to... To think about as we go through this uh, penultimate set of letters in our in our read through of the third volume of the uh, selected letters of H. P. Lovecraft. All right, so the the first one we're going to talk about is uh, J. Vernon Shea. Um, so let's look up a bit about him. So he's from Kentucky. Uh, he s started writing letters to weird tales. Um, at the, uh, uh, so it's the 1931 is when he initiated his correspondence with H.P. Lovecraft, basically sending uh, stories for his for his uh, criticism. Um, he eventually served in the military, uh, died in 1981, and he's kind of associated with like the, the Lovecraft circle after Lovecraft died. Um, so we actually have a whole volume of uh, of letters by Hippocampus Press. Uh, which include the letters to uh, Vernon, uh, J. Vernon Shea, Carl Strasch, and Lee McBride White. So three people um, are grouped together in that collection of, of letters. I don't know if those were the back and forth, like the Means to Freedom volume, but it might be worth checking that out if you want to know more about this guy. So he's mostly known for a little bit of writing weird fiction and being in that kind of Lovecraft circle. So, anyways, the first letter we have here is dated June 19th. And we'll look at all the Vernon Shea letters. There's six of them all together in this set. So, quite a frequent correspondence in the summer of 31. Um, so, he starts out really... He often does this with uh, when he's giving advice or talking about to, to, to young writers, talking about how he was influenced by various people. He talks about his influence... Um, how he was influenced by Poe. He talks about his The Outsider, which I think is really one of his great stories, but Lovecraft here kind of criticizes it. 
um, saying it's a oh, let's let's find exactly what he said because he's kind of harsh on this story and I think it's a bit unfair. He says this, others, including editor Wright, share with you in liking The Outsider, but I cannot say I share this opinion. To my mind, this tale written a decade ago is too glibly mechanical in its elimination effect and almost comic in its bombastic pomposity of its language, end quote. So I think we see here, you know, he's starting to more consciously turn his back maybe on his earlier, um, some of his earlier writings. Um, not all of them. He says, he still, he still says Color Up Space is one of his best tales. And he praises the music of Eric John, too, which is another one he likes. So not all these older stories he dislikes. But he says the same thing about The Hound in one of these letters. I think we looked at it a few episodes ago where he just didn't like that episode. And that's also kind of an overly written tale. Um, But I think the most interesting thing here in this letter is he talks about Dunwich. um, And he talks about Dunwich as a, you know, kind of the geography of Dunwich and where Dunwich and towns like Dunwich fit into his overall cosmic geography. Um, he says, I use considerable realism in developing the locale of the thing, the prototype being the decaying agricultural region northeast of Springfield, Mass., especially the township of Wilbraham, where I visited for a fortnight. And then he talks about how in Whispers in Darkness he's doing the same thing, but, but doing using Vermont and using the Vermont setting as the foundation of the tale. So uh, once again, we see how important geography is to you know, what's inspiring him to write. So I think that's kind of an important aspect. Uh, we see, this comes up a lot in his letters, anyways. Um, the next letter he writes to Vernon Shea is... It's actually... Uh, no, it's a month later, July 19th. The first was June 19th. This was July 19th, 1931. And he expresses his interest in, in J. Vernon Shea's writing, his interests. But mostly he tells them a little bit about like writing in weird tales, the publication process of writing for weird, weird tales, some revisions he did for them. Um, and he basically talks a little bit about some of his feelings about contemporary fiction, one of which being kind of mass fiction, right? And, and there's actually a couple of letters where he comes back to this theme of how, you know, there's like this machine-made writing, this kind of more mechanical style writing, which he's not fond of, but he thinks that's what's in a lot of the magazines. He says, uh, conversely, the less you read of popular magazine trash, the better will be your chances of achieving genuine artistic expression. It is the machine-made insincere trash that brings in the money. But that is another story which has nothing to do with literature, end quote. Um, so he's saying this is not even literature, right? It doesn't have any connection to literature. Um, so, yeah, we, we know his opinions about this. But he also, you know, talks about other more famous, less pulpy writers from the time. Uh, and he mentions H.L. Uh, Mencken, who he really praises here and thinks he's a great writer. And he is. Mencken's writing is wonderful. Um, someday I'll do a series on that on my main podcast. Um, but he's not a big fan of Joyce saying about Joyce, um, where is it? Joyce is hardly worth reading unless one be a specialist in the history of literary form, form, end quote. Gertrude Stein is an erratic extremist whose work is a total loss as far as real art is concerned. <laughs> Proust does not at all like him, but inherits many qualities, not like Joyce, but inherits as many qualities from the main tradition of the French novel. End quote. So he's not a fan of these modernist writers. Now, Gertrude Stein, I haven't really read too much on. I, I kind of mean to. She's she's she she's interesting. She's like a art critic and a novelist and, and things like that. So she's worth checking out, I think. And an American, right? But another one of those Americans living in Europe, but still. Uh, he also mentions in this, in this letter some of the revisions he did for different people, including the Eddie revisions, Love Dead and Deaf, Dumb and Blind, which I haven't looked at because my collection 
doesn't have those stories and i and i heard that they're not too overly revised by by lovecraft i don't know i know people who think the love dead really essentially is just a lovecraft story or talk about it as a lovecraft story but i'm not sure i i've what i've read about this suggests that it's it's pretty much an eddie story that lovecraft just sort of proofread but i i might get to it in the revisions someday if i if i get a hold of it okay uh so next we have uh August 7th, where he talks a little bit more about the publication process for Weird Tales, just what it takes to get published in Weird Tales, really giving good advice to a young writer. Um, a week later, so the, in, a week later, and then a week after that, he writes a couple letters where he starts to talk about August Derleth. And I don't know, I'm really starting to get the feeling he doesn't think that much of August Derleth in, sometimes, uh, based on some of the things he says here. Um, he's... He, he thinks August or less has potential, but he thinks he's a little bit too commercial, a little bit kind of a sellout. He seems to suggest he's a little bit of a sellout sometimes. Now, of course, Derleth uh, edited these letters, so I wonder how that experience was, you know, seeing some of these. Not really hostile. I mean, Lovecraft is fairly generous to people overall, but from time to time he's, uh, you know, he's, he's brutally honest too. Where, where can I find it? He says, As for Derleth, I don't wonder you find his Weird Tales stuff mediocre. He holds all records for leading a literary double life. For his serious work is nothing, is no is more like this commercial junk than Marcel Proust is like Nietzschean Daelis. He despises his potboilers utterly and eloquently, but continues to write them because they bring highly welcome checks. So he's kind of calling him a sellout here. That he has the potential for much better writing, but he doesn't really embrace it because he's just going after the market. Um, and he kind of repeats this theme, a, you know, a week later on August 21st, saying he's really not seriously writing weird fiction, at least as much as he perhaps should be or could be. Um, but then the letter drifts into a, a little bit on H.P. Lovecraft's kind of youthful isolation and how that may have affected his upbringing and his imagination and his writing. And he even draws a self-portrait here, which is kind of endearing. He actually writes a couple stories uh, or draws a couple pictures here, and they're included in the selected letters, thankfully. Now, I think there's a lot of these kind of sketches throughout the letters, but only a handful of them made it into the, into the selected letters themselves. Um, but... So he gets a little bit personal about his own, you know, experience developing as a writer in that letter. And then we got one more, and that's on September 13th, again to, uh, to the same guy, J. Vernon Shea, where he's encouraging uh, him to write and talking a little bit more about contemporary literature. But um, what we see here, it's six letters altogether, and what we see in this set are, is a more experienced writer, someone who's been working in Weird Tales for a while, helping a younger weird fiction writer um, with advice and guidance and, and trying to warn him of certain pitfalls and, and, and trying to guide him towards, I think, away from this more commercial, commercialized writing that he sees Derleth embracing a little bit too much. So those six letters, I think they go together quite well. And we're going to see quite a few more in the next episode, actually. I think there's another... Uh, five or six in the final set of letters in the select in the selected letters volume three that uh, kind of continue on this conversation all right moving on so next we have three letters to elizabeth tolbridge his steady correspondent someone he's been uh we've been 
reading a lot of letters to her throughout this volume. She might be the most if, if I add them up. I, I should do that maybe at the end of the next episode. Add up all the letters uh, to, to, to each person. So we get a sense of who he's writing to the most uh, at this time. Um, at least as reflected in the selected letters. I always got that uh, proviso because these are highly, highly edited and we're only getting a sampling of them. But I, it's, I think it reflects you know, what he's thinking at the time pretty well. Um, so the first one we have is uh, July 19th. Um, so this one is about her Florida trip, which we talked about in the last episode. He went to Florida, uh, St. Saint August, Saint Augustine, Key West, Miami, I think some other places. And usually when he talks about these trips, he talks about the, the settings and the geography and the location and how these kind of reflect certain cultures and how they're kind of an inspiration for him. Um, so he get, he has a, quite, a, quite a few kind of re, uh, reflections on this Florida trip overall. Uh, he says he really wants to go to Havana, go to Cuba this time. This is before the Cuban Revolution, right? So Cuba at this time really is a, a quasi-colony of the United States. But I don't think he ever went there. But he's hoping he can go to Havana and maybe see that Spanish environment there as well. He's been inspired by St. Augustine. And basically, Florida gave him so, so much needed comfort, I guess, is the sense we get. Um, that it was, it was a nice period of... A ref it was a refreshing moment for Lovecraft, at least according to what he says to Tolbridge. Um, then we get uh, about a week later on July 25th, he writes her again. Uh, now, this is a much more substantial letter thematically where he gets into questions of, it's also a fairly long one, uh, five, five pages or so uh, in the selected letters. Um, but basically, he's talking about the fate of, of, civilization the causes of the great depression so this is this might be the first letter where he actually takes on and talks about the great depression directly um you know it's it's in the backdrop of this we haven't it hasn't come up in the in all of this third volume really much the politics of that and the the economic causes of it and the trauma of the great depression we don't get a sense of that affecting lovecraft's thinking too much but we know by the fourth and I, and I think in the fifth volumes of the Selected Letters, it comes up a lot more. The growing tension in the world, um, growing conflict in the Pacific and in Europe, the rise of fascism, the Great Depression, these things become much more on his mind. And he starts to think more, I, th I want to say practically, uh, thinks more about policy, a little bit less abstractly about some of these issues. And, and I think this is a good place to start seeing that. Um, so he starts out, though, in the broad macro terms that we're used to seeing from him, talking about the future of the West and, and the place of the individual in this new mechanized world, um, all these kind of things we've seen before. But he jumps really on to, to the Great Depression, and he sort of blames this on democracy. He says, democracy is a complex industrial civilization, and it is a joke since it means, okay, democracy in a complex industrial civilization is a joke since it means nothing but the concentration of all resources in the hands of a few capable plutocrats and the subterraneous rule of this group uh, under the outward forms of democracy. Concerning unemployment, the present wave is the worst yet because it combines the new and permanent element with the recurrent depression elements, which always come at intervals in unregulated commercial nations, end quote. So, you know, there's a lot there I think any, any, any regular leftist would agree with, right? Capitalism inherently has these cycles, right, that 
in an industrial civilization, you get the rise of a new class, and this class being this kind of technocratic class, right? Actually, I think uh, we're still living in that, that, that era of the, the growing power of the technocratic class, right? The Elon Musks and the Bill Gates people, you know, having, being that billionaire class, having so much control over the direction of technology and the direction of, and, and how our society is run. Um, I think we can't underestimate that. Um, but Lovecraft's sort of onto this. Um, now, where does he, when he gets to the cause of the Great Depression in this letter, he really seems to think individualism is somehow the cause of the Great Depression. Kind of, you know, and, and he's got a lot of good insights here. He's not blaming just blanket individuals. He's, he gives specific reasons for this. He doesn't just say, oh, people are too free or too individualized. He, he actually gives some good reasons saying, Quote, the manufacturer under the traditional system seeks to produce as much as possible with as little expenditure as possible and therefore installs labor-saving machinery, discharging all but a few men needed to run it and keep time these busy as much as he can in the face of labor union pressure. This formerly gained him good profit, but now he finds that after this cheap, easy, inexhaustible producing mechanism has turned out a certain number amount of goods, there's no market whatsoever for more. End quote. And now, now a Marxist reading this would say, oh, he's kind of getting at declining rate of profit here, right? This is kind of the, the, the theory of the declining rate of profit suggested here, or, or why, why, why profits tend to decrease when you mechanize, right? Why mechanization alone isn't a solution to the problem of, of overproduction. You know, it creates means of post-scarcity, but it doesn't, uh, under capitalism, right? It's got all these contradictions. So it's kind of a nice, interesting letter in that way where you really see him kind of upping his game and how he thinks about the world around him. Uh, not in these broader abstract terms about the Hellenistic Empire and the Romans and 18th century stuff. He's actually getting nitty gritty thing in, in this, talking about the profit motive um, and the contradictions in that. He gets into, I think his biggest insight though, is this machine age politics, this idea that in this machine age, you're going to get this plutocratic, this technocratic class of, of, of rulers, right? He calls them the plutocrats, but really he's, I think he's talking about the technocrats, right? The engineering class who are going to rise to the top in this, in this competition because they're going to understand how the machine works. They're going to know why the lights turn on when you flip the switch. And most of us don't, can't know. We can never really be informed of everything that affects our lives. So... It just ends up being managed and run by by others, right? It's like it's like Metropolis, in a way. So he's not original, certainly, in in these ideas. But I think this shows him with a kind of a much more sophisticated economic analysis than we've seen before from him. So I, I think this is an important letter. I really do. So uh, then we have. On August 31st, he writes her again, and this time, I've got to find it in my notes. Um, also talks about machine culture. So this is kind of a follow-up to that uh, letter. We only got a page of it here. And he, and he kind of says, well, I think it must have been a, a response to some question she asked about, you know, other locations. And he says, well, you know, but maybe it's a little bit different in England or different places or agrarian countries may have a slightly different economic ideas and, and trajectory. He still thinks that the whole world's kind of going into this machine culture though. But he adds this, uh, a little bit to this insight about politics 
in machine production, saying that you, you kind of end up needing the state more in, in this machine culture because you're going to need something that can manage things, right? You can't be these yeoman Jeffersonian farmers anymore. So he kind of says like the Soviet Union has got sort of the right idea. They're kind of embracing this machine culture more aggressively, not resisting it. Uh, and he actually says much could be learned from the Soviet Union. Though no one would like to see the complete system of that country with its discouragement of pure aesthetics and its arbitrary restriction of the individual adopted in the Western world. The choice is between chaos and reorganization. The wise man chooses the latter. So he's saying, yeah, given this, we gotta, it's got to be managed somehow, and that's going to require a state, right? And that state will probably be run by these uh, technocrats. But, you know, Lovecraft thinks that's just the world we're in, right? That's just the civilization we've sort of built up. The best we can do, and this comes up in a later letter, maybe we'll get to it next time, I think, where he says, like, the best we can sort of do is defend, what do I want to say? The best we can do is def- defend folkways as best we can. So he's almost making an argument for ethno-nationalism in, a, in an interesting way, saying, in the, kind of in a statist way, saying states have a duty then to preserve what culture they can. And, and people, when they criticize nationalism, I think rightfully criticize it for kind of suppressing these local traditions and, and, and cultures when they kind of embrace a national culture. But I think Lovecraft is coming to the conclusion that maybe that's the best we can get, right? Like a nation could preserve some aspects of a culture and a tradition in its mythology and its education or whatever. It may destroy other local customs and, and cultures and things, but the state might preserve it in, in some to some degree, and that's better than nothing. Um, so I, I think there's some, some increasing nuance in these, these Tolbridge letters, especially the July 25th and August 31st letters. So they're worth checking out. Um, then we have uh, just one letter to Wilfred Blanche Tallman, which is barely worth even mentioning. It's, it's literally, all we have here is one line. It's like a note. It's part of a longer letter, I think. But it's dated July 30th. Um, and all he's talking about is trade paperbacks and red tape and publishing and efficiency, inefficiency in publishing. It's, it's really opaque even what he's trying to get at here. So I'll just ignore it. But just the, the, the people who edited this thought it was important to include this little passage. And so it's there, but very, very short. All right, so, um, but only the one to, to Tallman. Tallman was someone he wrote uh, or he helped write Two Black Bottles, a story I looked at a few episodes ago. All right, next we have the longtime correspondent Maurice Moe. Two letters to Maurice Moe about religion. So with these letters, I'm really sort of reminded of the, the long letter to Frank Malkinap Long we looked at last episode where he really comes back to the theme of why we need civilization to guide us and, and how Protestantism kind of can be that in New England. That's kind of the, the folk way of New England. Um, but... You know, maybe other religions can fit in different contexts, but he says a lot of harsh things about Catholicism, right? So depending on how you read it, on the surface, it looks pretty hostile to Catholicism because he has a preference for, it seems, Protestantism, and there may be a preference for a more scientific culture overall beyond that. But he's willing to accept that, you know, something is better than nothing to a certain degree. Um, But this whole letter um, gets into issues of class and civilization and, and religion in interesting ways. Um, so he writes this. 
the lower classes among whom contemporary education is not diffused and who will therefore continue to hand down a naively theistic tradition are now overwhelmingly Catholic. To think clearly about the cosmos in the light of contemporary information is to abandon any possibility of believing in the fantastic and capricious orthodoxies of yesterday, be they Buddhist, Judea, Christian, Hindu, Mohammedan, or any other brand. More liberal wist delusions, however, will undoubtedly last for several generations more, or until the race has lost that emotional dependence on mythic values. So he does see a need for religion, especially among the lower classes, as something that's going to sort of hold their hold them together really so he, he's there's a bit of a defense of theism here just as part of his overall cultural conservatism all right um now he does think though like liberalism are are basically just pretty much as much of a dream in a dream state as religious um but ultimately he concludes religions are false no more real than than Cthulhu, all right, but but he sees their their space, their place. Um, now there's a follow up letter, again to Mo on August thirtieth, which carries on this discussion of of theism a little bit. And the way he kind of comes at this is, is he says uh, a man of sense, like a scientist, someone of a, of that worldview. When they are exposed to evidence that their religion is wrong, they'll change their opinion, right? But it's obviously most people don't do that. Right, So most people still hold on to these myths. Quote, Many forms of modern religion have none of the rank grotesqueness and absurdity of yesterday's dead orthodoxies. And many of these orthodoxies, especially Anglicanism, have acquired a civilized mellowness which redeems them from the blind plebeian insanity of camp-meeting gospel. End quote. So he, he's kind of saying they're, they're changing. Religions are changing a little bit. And moving into the modern era, a little bit, albeit slowly maybe, kind of being dragged into it. Um, but um, a little bit more about about theism, I guess, here. And then a little, some personal notes in this letter as well. So that's what he says. Now, this is one of the, as always, when he writes to Mo or Frank Balknack Long, he likes to address himself as grandpa. He does that again here. A little bit self-deprecation about his, 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 him aging up a little bit. All right, next we have two to Robert E. Howard. Um, usually I don't want to say too much about these because I'm going to come back to all these letters in a, in a little bit more detail. Um, hopefully a lot more detail uh, towards the end of this this entire series. But if, you, if you're just listening to this to kind of get a sense of what's in these letters, I can tell you these are, these are two doozies. They're, they're kind of good. They're, they're rather good. Um, the first is August 6th, 1931. And it's about H.P. Lovecraft's own identity and heritage, which is something he talks a lot about. Um, but he's this is still the beginning of the correspondence with H.P. Lovecraft. So he, he takes the time to reflect a little bit on his own preferences and identity, right? Now, by this point, we know from other letters that he's taking this less seriously than he did in his earlier life. He thinks, you know, ancestry does get sort of diluted and it becomes much more mythologizing and it becomes much more, you know, He's a little bit softer about it, right? Than he may have been early on. It's not so much uh, a definer of who we are as much as a myth we tell about ourselves, right? So he mentions, for instance, his like he's got some Mediterranean blood, right? Um, I think he mentions once having Jewish blood in another letter, kind of joking about it. You know, he, he still sees himself primarily as Anglo-Saxon, but you know, he's he's playing with maybe having other 
um, identities. He even says, quote, I might have put up a bluff at being a Cuban if I had the lingo, but it took only about a fortnight in the North to peel the whole business off. So that's after his trip to the South. He started thinking, maybe I could fake it as a as, as someone of Spanish descent, as a, as a Hispanic. Um, but he does that, and then he gets into a conversation about broader questions of heritage and memory and mythology, getting into like the Teutonic tribes and, and how he has some connection to that, but also some connection to the Romans. And so he's kind of admitting here he picks and chooses a little bit of his own identity, which, again, I, I think this is a, a much more nuanced and mature attitude than he had even five, six years ago when he would talk about his ancestry um, and his own personal identity. Uh, the second uh, letter we have here to Robert E. Howard is dated September 12th, and this one kind of carries on these themes in, in a few interesting ways, specifically going on about uh, racial memory um, and the origin of civilizations. Now, at the, at the surface, this really is about, about race itself. He says, undeniably, hereditary, heredity occasionally reproduces a physical and perhaps mental structure after the lapse of a few generations. But the reproduction of an acquired mental image of that structure is something far different and probably impossible. The most atavism could do is to duplicate a general temperament or a set of inclinations, end quote. Um, but facial features, physical characteristics, uh, more determined, I guess, by our, by our heritage. Um, quote, it's probably the fact that the second and third generation of alien immigrants' descendants are less foreign and apparent in facial aspects than the European forebearers. So... He kind of sees there's, there's, I guess, even change in that. So again, we, we got him reflecting that heritage isn't what he once thought it was. It isn't as much binding us. It's a much more, of, we have a much more fluid relationship with our ancestry than, than he used to want to admit. Um, then he talks a little bit about the origins of civilizations, which I think at this time there's still theories of Central Asia. Well, no, sorry, that's his origin of humans. Origin of civilizations is is was like a separate question right so that the human race started on some plateau in central asia is almost certain so that's the central asiatic theory of human origins but where did humans begin or where did civil human civilization begin like cities agriculture things like that and he's just telling howard here that it's not really clear but he definitely thinks of uh, he mentions like the epic of gilgamesh and the flood legend and all that and the connection to the Tigris and Euphrates. And that's all. So this is a good letter too, uh, where we see Lovecraft thinking about um, race kind of directly, uh, something he does a lot in his conversations with Howard, but also about uh, the origin of, of, of civilization. So that's that. That's the Howard ones. I'll say more about both of these letters in the future, I think. Um, I'm, I'm already starting to take very detailed notes of some of those letters. Um, all right, next we have uh, four letters to August Derleth. Um, what to say about these? They're all about kind of different topics a little bit. The first one is August 18th, which is, um, he's just suggesting some revisions to Derleth's work. I think Derleth sent him something, and he just writes back some suggestions, some minor things. Um, like, for instance, he corrects him on his use of Oklahoma, calling it like, he just calls it Oklahoma when it should have been the Indian Territory or something like that. So, you know, Lovecraft being a careful editor and reviser and, and, and correcting August or Leth when he went astray there. 
Um, the next letter we have is September 2nd, where he talks about ancient rule settings. This is actually a more interesting letter, so I think we can dwell on this one a little bit. It's kind of how uh, these some rule settings really take him back and give him this experience of the ancients. And there's other times, though, when he talks about like the cities doing that and the rural areas being somewhat de de degraded um, and distant from some past. But he says certainly in New England, there's this antiquity in, in rural settings that, that, that he finds inspiring. Quote, I have never been able to live without an ancient woods and fields. My birthplace, though an urban house on a stylely built-up street, was just on the edge of the settled district with a rural vacant lot next door and the whole stretch of unchanged farming countryside now built up in streets only a block away. Thus, I had always been in close touch with the earliest phases of New England agrestic life, able to walk a few minutes to fields and farmsteads 200 years old, right? And then he kind of connects this to his own identity and, and family history and even race a little bit. He gets a little bit into the kind of the racial memory of place here saying, um, you know, not too much though. This isn't like it's just a passing kind of reference here and there about race, um, but it's all connected. But it's mostly about his own personal reflections about rural settings and how much they mean to him. Um, then we got on September fifth, uh, he talks about a tour of Providence that he takes, and he's just reporting on a tour of Providence. Obviously, that's where he lives, and he often right walks around Providence, and often notices new things and reflects on them. Um, says, including parts that I have not set foot in in all my 41 years of existence. So he's still finding new places in Providence to explore. So that's a nice little bit. And then on September 9th, he writes to August Erleth again, talking about H.L. Uh, Mencken, some other writers, and generally all about his 19th century nostalgia, particularly his fondness for the old Georgian manner of writing and... Uh, even going into like some of the sources of what how we know about English in the seven, in the 17th century and 18th century from like the New England Primer and these Puritan texts and things like that. So he's uh, reflecting quite a lot about his own intellectual fondness for that time period. So um, again, these four letters they're kind of dealing with different issues, but I, I guess one thing they have in common is something about nostalgia of place, right? Providence, this rural New England area, and then generally the 18th century. So taking them together, if you read them together, back to back, you get the sense of him reflecting on different areas of his own nostalgia. All right, so the next letter is someone new. It's the letter's dated September 11th, 1931, and it's it's directed to C. Barry Quinn. C. Barry Quinn, and I'm pretty sure we've never seen a letter to him before um, in this in this podcast. Uh, he was born in 1889, died in 1969, um, and he's uh, he was a writer. He's like. He's primarily, I want on Wikipedia here, primarily put down here as a lawyer and journalist, but he was also a pulp magazine writer, um, and he published stories in Weird Tales. So he, he, he wrote about the occult detective Jules de Grandin. So I haven't read these stories, but they, they seem they might be interesting to check out. So he was, uh, and I think he's, and he's known to Lovecraft fans as someone who is a correspondent with. Um, so he's congratulating Quinn here on his, quote, rise in the editorial world, 
right? And he's thanking him for his feelings about the strange high house on the mist, um, which is something that he, uh, Lovecraft must have sent him. Or I think he's writing like a fan letter, in a sense, to Lovecraft about strange high house on the mist. Um, and then he kind of criticizes a little bit that it's too much in the Dunsany manner. He also talks about the white ship, which is maybe his his, his most Dunsian story. He often talks about the white ship and when criticizing himself for being too, you know, tied to the Dunsany model. All right. But we're going to see a few more letters in the future to, to see Barry Quinn. Um, and then the final letter I want to talk about in this episode is, is to Clark Ashton Smith. And this one's also dated uh, September 11th. And it's, it's really short. Uh, I'll just read it. Uh, he says, Dear Clark Ashton, indeed, little Durless. Again, there's dot dots here. So the editors here took out some of this letter. We just get this little bit about Durleth. Quote, indeed, little Durleth is getting cleverer and cleverer in his weird ideas. Some of his new tales are really remarkably good, especially such segments as the weird, the thing that walked in the wind, the house and the magnolias, and they shall rise in great number. That's it. That's what he writes. So he's... You know, we saw earlier in the summer him saying some pretty critical things about Durless, um, I guess, selling out. I guess that's the best way I can describe it. But, uh, you know, he certainly has some respect for Durless' uh, ability uh, when it's done well. So that's it. Uh, shorter. I think this is the shortest of the of the episodes covering this volume of the Selected Letters. Because there weren't that much bulk. There weren't many long letters in this one, I think. Um, and maybe I'm just repeating themes so much. I find I can kind of zip through them. But anyways, that just leaves one more episode. In fact, there's only 17 letters left in this in the in volume three of the selected letters. So I'll just do a that next episode. We'll just look at those 17 instead of the normal 20 that I, that I normally look at. And then I'll be that'll be it. And then we'll be done with this this volume. So I've been having fun going through the selected letters. I actually have done reading them and taking notes on all of them. I think it's a really nice volume. I don't think it's my favorite volume. I think I think volume four and five still are my favorite, especially volume four. It's because it's he, that's when he really starts to reflect more on this these ideas about machine culture in the in relation to the Great Depression and the rise of fascism. So I think as a historian, I'm more kind of interested in what he's saying in in those volumes, like saying later in the 30s. But we see that turn happening here. So it's I think it's worth having if you're um, a, a fan of H. H. P. Lovecraft and want to know more about what he's thinking. Um, so, anyways, I'll I'll give some final thoughts about the select letters after the next episode. So that's going to be it for now. Um, thanks as always for listening. Uh, let me know if you have any comments or thoughts about anything I've said here. Um, I would love to get your insight, and I'd love it if you could help me correct any errors I make or or develop any ideas that I just kind of sketched out here in a little bit more. Uh, detail. So uh, I'd really appreciate that. So you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or you can send me a tweet. So that's going to be it for now. See you next time as we close the book on the third volume of the Selected Letters of H.P. Lovecraft. See you then. Please don't let me lose my rightful mind Close them in graveyard words And Think so?